Hello there and welcome to the second episode of Absolute Liberation Podcast. So in this podcast I was joined by Emily and uh, we were talking about different issues surrounding the philosophy of liberation and this included different forms of oppression and Emily is a philosophy student so she was talking about all these different forms of oppression and different philosophies on liberation and we touched on uh, general veganism, speciesism and um, other relevant issues as well so I hope you do enjoy this podcast. With M, so um, would you like just to sort of introduce yourself um, as sort of what you do and uh, how you found yourself to, to be here today? Yeah, of course. So, um, hi everyone. I'm Em or Emily. So, I am a philosophy student over in Norwich, and um, obviously, I'm vegan. And um, my sort of journey into veganism, sort of animal rights, started when I um became vegetarian about three or so years ago. It was when I started learning about philosophy and about ethics. So today, that's exactly what I'm going to bring to the podcast. I'm going to bring a little bit of my knowledge to philosophy and sort of animal ethics and sort of the wider philosophy of oppression yeah. and revolutionary thought um so going a bit into me I am um, yeah I started being vegetarian a few years ago um after reading one of the books that we're going to talk about but um I was sort of in a bit of a negative relationship and the ability to go vegan sort of wasn't mm. there for me unfortunately which was a big stress um as soon as that relationship ended I then became a vegan and that's the journey that I'm on at the moment yeah um yeah so I'll be going um into my second year at in philosophy in September so I'm no expert <laughs> in any regard like I, I love philosophy I do eventually want to teach it but there might be some mistakes or some things might be very opinion based and that's something that you can always check um you can always talk to me about if you check me out on my Instagram which will probably be in the show yep notes. yep <laughs> yeah and and we can talk about stuff at the same time too cool so that's a bit about me. brilliant lovely okay um so um, would you like to go a little bit more in depth about sort of how you became vegan and uh, how you got into the animal rights side of things um, and just, yeah, just spread a bit of knowledge and go a bit deep into that? Yeah, definitely. So I um I was actually really into like humanitarian rights before anything. Yeah. So my mum and dad are quite um quite socialist and I've always been involved in like union work and always been involved in like I, I used to be quite big in the Labour Party, which I'm not as much anymore. Yeah. And that was sort of where my journey began I was very big on protests and I was going against fascism and doing all of these things and one day I it was a, an array of documentaries and books that I sort of watched and it just I was like I'm caring about all of these human issues and poverty and race issues but surely I should be caring about animals as well and that really stemmed from um, Animal Liberation by Peter Singer which I was told to read for um, my A-level course and it just sort of made me rethink all of these all of these ex ex um, radical thoughts that I had and why I wasn't putting that into 
animals. So yeah, then I went vegetarian and I started going to um, sort of animal rights marches mm -hmm. in Norwich. And I was quite big. Um, I was quite big in that movement, but I still wasn't vegan. So I had a lot of people coming against me a lot of the time being like, you're here, you've got all these views, but like, why haven't you made the, the full change? Yeah. And it's something that played played to me for quite a while and it wasn't until I um started working at a place called Kinder Cafe in Norwich which is a charity cafe for the missing kind which is vegan that I began to think that even more because we would constantly have vegan charities coming in that I was working with and having to cook for mm -hmm. and a, a really a really um really true parallel was put between my humanitarian thought and what I was acting on for how I thought about animals. So, Brilliant. yeah, sort of like I said, like I said, I that that then happened. And then the relationship that I was in then broke off. And um, a couple of my friends are also vegan. And it just gave me the real confidence to make the change. And since then, um, I've, I'm with this lockdown as well. I haven't been able to do much. Yeah. But since then, I've been, research yeah, I've been researching so many different animal rights movements i've signed myself up to quite the quite radical vegan society at uea i'm looking <laughs> at doing some more um radical sort of protest movements but maybe more so than protests because i think as i will speak about later on the best sort of revolutionary um, measures are when you have activism and when you also have thought and true action at the same time yeah. so yeah, that's sort of been my journey. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, it's really interesting because um, when we we when we were talking previously, it was like <laughs> you sort of did the reverse to me. I went vegan, and then I got into sort of the radical side of veganism and sort of radical politics and um, mm. that sort of thing, and talking about other forms of oppression and things like that. And it's like you've done the complete opposite to that. So you've gone from that the sort of recognizing the issues of race and um uh, radical politics and things like that and then you got into veganism so that's like really interesting to to hear that um yeah it, definitely yeah um yeah it definitely is i mean like another thing that we were talking about which i think is a good point to put in place with what mm -hmm. we're going to be talking about today is just the fact that the two issues are so deep rooted together yeah for because sure. i mean the, the idea of veganism is amazing and we want to advocate it for everyone. But what about the people that can barely afford to put food on their own table? Yeah, for sure. Like the only thing they can afford is like frozen chicken nuggets and chips for their kids sort of thing like that. Yeah, like until, yeah. until we've addressed the humanitarian issue of oppression and um, we, we liberate sort of human animals mm -hmm. and when that would naturally be a be a follow-on for um the oppression of animals and animal liberation so the the two are very linked and like, it is funny how we've both come to that conclusion from different sides yeah. of the spectrum which is cool too it's definitely, very cool definitely um perfect so that leads us on quite nicely to the sort of next topic that we wanted to talk about sort of the philosophy of veganism and um well the the very amazing book by peter singer uh, animal liberation so would would you like to give us sort of um your views um and what you know um what you sort of understand from that book and uh, where it's got you um today basically 
Yeah, of course. So, um, Animal Liberation was first published in 1975, which is pretty goddamn revolutionary. Like, it was an absolute revelation of philosophical thought and was one of the first pieces of, like, modern philosophy that addressed the treatment of animals and addressed yeah. veganism. So, Peter Singh has been a vegan since he was in his 20s, and the guy's in his late 80s now, I'm pretty yeah. sure. So, he was doing this years and years decades and decades you know before it was even a norm and it was very radical so like I said I read the book during my A-level studies when I was learning about Peter Singer and I was just fascinated by his radical views and it really did begin my journey into sort of veganism and by going, by going vegetarian initially and mm-hmm. um, so yeah, um, recently sort of getting ready for this podcast, I've been rereading it and it's just made me, it's sort of reiterated to me, especially now as a vegan, that I realise the same way that racist and sexist views allow us to discriminate against minorities mm-hmm. and women, speciesism allows us to discriminate against um, animals because we inscribe an inferior status yeah. on them. We regard we don't regard them as individuals, but as objects and a mean to fill our desire. And I'm... Um, I mean a lot of you may know but like speciesism is the idea that a being that being human is a good enough reason for animals to have um less of a moral right than than human yeah. animals so which which is awful and unfortunately speciesism is the norm mm-hmm. you know like like the majority of people eat meat or they wear leather or they they accept the world that they live in and it's just a norm and i think i think a re- a really interesting thing to bring into it is how uh, uh, how equality inequality of women and inequality of race was seen as exactly the same thing. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, so we viewed um, women as objects that give something to us and aren't seen as intellectual beings themselves i mean when mary willenstonecraft in the 1700s she was a big feminist and um, published her vindication of the rights of women in 1792 her views were sort of widely regarded as absurd and um funnily enough a cambridge philosopher of the time tried to refute her argument by showing that it could be carried one stage further he and he and i quote said if the argument for equality was sound when applied to women why should it not be applied to dogs cats <laughs> and you know you know the statement was of course meant to be a joke because like women weren't even given rights so why animals? yeah but it actually i think it really brilliantly highlights why speciesism is the same is uh, on two sides of the same coin to humanitarian yeah, issues definitely. because if if women were being applied to as the same moral status as animals but women and rightfully so are now on the road to equality then what gives us any right to think any differently about animals if they were literally compared to as the same state of being? Mm. Yeah, you know? yeah. And I find that I find that really, really fascinating. And this is what Peter Singer talks about in his book. He sort of goes into this in his introduction, um, which I found really, really interesting because, like I said, coming from like a humanitarian side of a, of um, liberation that's what made me start to consider it like on a very deep level I was like wow there really is like no difference definitely yeah and you know another thing but like what does actually make something equal and like what grounds of similarity do we bound equality to in humans like when we say that all human beings whatever their race class sex are equal what is that that we're asserting like like it or not like it or not Mm -hmm. 
we all come in different shapes and sizes with different moral capabilities, different intellectual abilities. We experience pleasure and pain in different ways. We communicate in different ways. So the sort of mathematical word equal isn't how we're asserting it in within humans because we're also different. Definitely. So if we're if we're if we're governing such a difference in different humans as as a, a predicate of equality, then surely the difference in animals isn't a good enough reason to be like, well, we can't be like animals can't be equal because they're so different. Yeah, us. for sure. It's really interesting. Yeah, and that's yeah, yeah, definitely. And that's a really big point he sort of plays into it. Um just like what does it mean to for something to be equal and the similarities between how we view humans and how we view animals as different beings, yet the dissimilarity between the equality of that. It's another thing that really made, got me thinking. Yeah, cool. So, uh, yeah, I don't know if you've um, sort of had that sort of take on it before, but I found it really fascinating. Yeah, um, yeah, for sure. That's something like, um, yeah, I don't know. It's like something that I really, I, I agree with, but it's kind of... Um, something that for me it just came as um yeah just it was just basically yeah I don't know how to put it but um I I don't know I just kind of figured out on my own uh kind of thing it's like what you wouldn't want it's like it's, it's like that vegan it's basically like the vegan comparison I suppose like they say um there's like the comparison of like um with sort of feminism and uh, the dairy industry um mm -hmm. sometimes that can be kind of negative um kind of the way people phrase it but it, on the gist of it is kind of it is kind of relevant um in the sense of like um you we want to give equal rights to women um because of who they are and animals um in the dairy industry are being exploited for their reproductive system and um yeah and it's like you there's a comparison that's been that that that, that gets made um in the vegan movement um sort of you know if we did mm. if we did this to to human women you know what we'd call it so that wouldn't so that's not a good justification to do it to dairy cow well in quotations dairy cows um yeah, well, I mean, so that's it, kind of like the definitely an argument. Yeah, yeah. So that's sort of where I kind of heard ah. that kind of argument from, and I remember like I had a friend who was kind of like, "Oh, well, I hate feminists because they say that, and because they're not vegan." And I was like, mm, "There's something about that that's a bit off," and then it started making me yeah. think. Well, you know like we shouldn't hate feminists because obviously like i don't know like you just it's just obvious not to you <laughs> yeah basically <laughs> and yeah no it's really yeah. It's, sorry Kyle. yeah um and it's just from that really that like that sort of discussion that made me realize like i should care about feminism equally as as much as i care about um uh the female cows in the dairy industry um yeah, and vice versa really yeah, definitely. And just, you know, just the idea that animals and women were compared to as the same thing, yet, yet women are on the road to equality and animals still 
are so far behind. I just think, considering they were like animals and women were oppressed against just as much mm-hmm. in that time, like why why aren't animals being treated as as more than? And obviously that then comes into the difference thing I spoke about yeah. and the the pulling apart all these differences that humans have to animals, but completely ignoring that we're still trying to advocate for human equality, but humans are also bloody different from one another too. Yeah, you know. Yeah. There's there's no there's no logically compelling reason, assuming uh, the difference in the ability of two people as a consideration to why they shouldn't be equal. You yeah. know, and I think so. Um, as Singer puts it, the principle of equality of human beings is not a description on the alleged equality among humans, but it's a prescription on how we should treat human beings. It's not we're not trying to say that we are equally the same as each other because we're all our own people yeah but it's a prescription on how we should treat human beings as equal and this is what he argues we should be doing with animals too that it's not a prescription on on humans and animals being the same but it is a prescription on how we should treat them because Mm -hmm. they have some similarities even though they're different such as the fact that they can feel pleasure and pain the fact that they're living the fact that they should be allowed should be allowed a life in the same way we do and this sort of like naturally segues into like the second part of his book which is Mm -hmm. the sort of moral framework of utilitarianism so um utilitarianism is an ethical theory that determines um right or wrong by focusing on the outcomes so in in philosophy and this leads me on to the sort of key moral framework of Singer's book, which is utilitarianism. And that's an ethical theory that de- determines right or wrong by focusing on outcomes. So utilitarianism holds that the most ethical choice is one that will produce the greatest good for the greatest number. The best way to assess an action is on the amount of pleasure or suffering caused. Obviously, the more pleasure and the less amount of suffering. And this is a very famous sort of ethical theory in philosophy. I mean, um, you will always learn about it during a degree or during a level or on on that ground and um this sort of utilitarian thought on the philosophy of animals sort of started off in in 1700s with sort of what some may call the father of utilitarianism which was jeremy bentham mm-hmm. And um, he was incredibly radical and he wasn't, he did eat meat, don't get me wrong, um, but his his ideas on animals and how humans were treating them and the moral inconsistencies, he's um, arguably one of the first people to ever write about it, which is amazing. And, you know, this is what... Um, this is what uh, Singer talks about in his book. He sort of talks about Jeremy Bentham and um, reworks his utilitarianism in that sense. Um, so yeah the interests he says the interests of every being affected by an action are to be taken into account and given the same way as any other living being so Bentham was already sort of considering um, animal rights in his moral theory which is really cool considering he was from the 1700s (laughs) yeah so interesting yeah definitely and so um, obviously Thomas Jefferson, who was one of the sort of founding fathers of um, America, of um, America, he he sort of used this principle for the um, equality of men, and in the American Declaration of Independence, it led him to oppose slavery, 
um, just because it made him think, you know, it was like, right, so every being's got to be taken into account. And if every being is taken, every suffering of the being is taken into account, then look at all the slavery. Um, And he, he, that's why he was at the, um, the sort of driving force of abolishing slavery. And I just think it, it shows another, another comparison to animals with this utilitarian thought here, because the fact that, I mean, we could consider animals as slaves in a lot of sense, especially animals in farms. I think, I think that's a, a fair comparison. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're kept in, they're kept in pens. They're not given like freedom. They, they're not given freedom of how long they can live their life, whether they can be with their families, when they can eat what they want. Yeah. You're like, we could call them slaves essentially. Yet, Thomas Jefferson in in the eighteen in the eighteen hundreds was already making that comparison on utilitarian thought about how every being is equal, mm-hmm. and I just think it's an interesting point to pull in. Yeah, definitely. And um, it sort of then yeah, I think then it sort of leads me on to why we we would consider animals as unequal anyway because people do and i think Mm -hmm. the biggest thing that people tell me is intelligence i don't know if you've heard the saying yeah yeah i've heard which annoys me so much like people like oh well they can't read or write Mm -hmm. they can't they can't talk to us so we 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 should be given more equality or they should be we should be able to eat them and (laughs) do what we want with them because they're not as intelligent as us yeah and I think another another great comparison I want to pull into my fellow humanitarian friends mm. is so there was a black feminist named uh, Sojourner Truth. Mm-hmm. She made this same point at a feminist convention. Um, they she was like they talk about this thing in the head. What do they call it? Intellect. That's it. What's that got to do with women's rights or black people's rights? Mm-hmm. We're not given the we 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 can't be given a school to grow in intelligence, but we should still be equal. Was pretty yeah. much what she was saying. And then it just makes you think. So if that was a good enough comparison to be put into feminist thought that women weren't given the ability to be intelligent yet they should still be equal then what does an animal's intelligence bloody matter you know what i mean (laughs) yeah yeah and i think that's another thing that singer plays plays into animal liberation he's trying to make people think about the things that they care about and try to compare it to animals Mm -hmm. that makes sense yeah Um, yeah yeah and it's on the basis of that case that um Again, it, it's, uh, it's on the basis of that case against racism and the case against sexism, but also in the case against speciesism. Yeah. By analogy, if possessing a higher degree of intelligence or status does not entitle one human to use another, then how does it entitle humans to exploit non-humans for the same purpose? Yeah, definitely. And so does Peter Singer. He thought it was so revolutionary to be hearing Bentham sort of talk about these issues. And that's why he wrote the book himself and became a utilitarian and became a vegan Mm -hmm. and became an animal rights sort of activist, we may call it. And um, I'd just like to read a quick quick passage from um, uh, Bentham's own writings which was written in the 1700s obviously I'm going to translate it so it's a bit easier Mm -hmm. to understand but it's just incredibly interesting and it talks about a lack of suffering and what we've been sort of talking about but the um 
The day may come when the rest of the animal creation may acquire those rights which would never have been withheld from them by the hands of the tyranny. The French have already discovered that the blackness of skin is no reason why a human being should be abandoned. It may one day come to be recognised that the number of legs, the velocity of the skin or the way that a, a, that a being lives is equally insufficient for abandoning a sensitive being to the same fate. What else is it that should trace this line? Is it the faculty of reason? or perhaps the faculty of discourse but a full-grown horse or dog is beyond compassion beyond comparison a more rational as well as a more conversable animal than an infant of a day or a week of a month old but suppose they were otherwise what they were otherwise would it avail the question is not can they reason nor can they talk but can they suffer wow. and i think that sort of yeah that sort of really well illustrates the philosophy behind um animal liberation and also behind what Bentham was saying I know and the fact that was written in the 1700s (laughs) that's mental that's such a that's such a powerful statement really really powerful it is it really really is and I just I just think yeah it's wonderful and it was a real big step into the right direction and um, unfortunately though Bentham wasn't remembered for his animal um, views in any regard. He was called the father of utilitarianism, but yeah. he sort of he developed a theory which, because he was the first, people just like to pull apart where he went wrong and try to make the theory better. And I mean that is in nature philosophy. Someone yeah. proposes something, and then you know they move on into something else and develop it. But Singer brilliantly brought back into light what Bentham should be regarded for, which was an absolute saint in regards to thinking and caring about animal liberation yeah definitely and yeah you know sort of sort of coming coming to like ending points on on this I guess but Mm -hmm. looking looking at suffering and the fact that this utilitarian philosophy is that if we maximize pleasure and minimize suffering this does so much good now when we actually think about bringing in a world of where speciesism doesn't exist we would have to change our diet the farming methods we use experiments (laughs) fields of science approaches to wildlife trapping and wearing of furs like the entertainment industry and if you add up all of these things how much suffering would be avoided if they were to be stopped yeah like in, it would be so revolutionary on the grounds of utilitarian thought because so much pleasure would be created. Yeah, and yeah. I, that is in essence the main theme of animal liberation that he brings. And like those those um examples that I've just put out, he goes apart dissecting them bit by bit and how this might work and um how the philosophy behind it would would encourage that. And it's a brilliant, brilliant book. And obviously I could probably go on about it for like 10 hours. Mm-hmm. But that is that is like the main theme and the philosophy behind it. Um, yeah. And I really recommend reading it. The PDF is free. Yeah, on, yeah. On Google. So give it a read. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, thank you for sharing that. Um, yeah, uh, that, that sort of, yeah, Peter Singer, Animal Liberation book. It's definitely one of the things that sort of inspired me um, to think about whether well, a term that I would call collective liberation um, in mm. the sense of um, the sort of the pleasure aspect. But also for me, a real big part of that um, 
was a group called Move or sort of the Move Move, move Movement. Um, yeah. So um, their sort of ideology was anarcho primo primo. Can never say this word. Primo. <laughs> gosh. Primavillatism, I think it said like that. Uh, black liberation, animal rights, commune, communalism, and environmentalism. Um, and the they one of their major sort of actions was the nineteen seventy eight and nineteen eighty five fatal shootouts with police officers. Um, mm. But yeah, so that they were one of the biggest groups, sort of the biggest things. Uh, Move and um, Peter Singer were one of the biggest things that made me think about this sort of cl- cl- collective liberation um, sort of thing, especially Move, because they were a group um, fighting for black liberation, fighting for environmentalism, whilst fighting for animal rights. So they also... Um, were fighting for others when they had to deal with their own oppression from an, a group who were black and in the time where they were based, like they were dealing with police um, racism even more so than today. Um, mm. It was it was undeniably worse back then, and um, yeah, so they were dealing for that, dealing with that, and um, so they were dealing with their own oppression. Um, which is something, as a white person, I would never be able to understand. <laughs> a, a white person fighting for animal liberation is never going to be the same as a, a black person fighting for animal liberation. So, for me, they were so inspirational in the sense that they were dealing with their own oppression whilst fighting for the other oppressions um, of uh, animals, the environment, and so forth, and so much, well, and other human beings as well. Um and the way we would look after humans, which is just, yeah, kind of my ideology in a nutshell, really. Yeah, it's wonderful. It's absolutely brilliant. And and it's like what we were talking about, about how the issues are all intrinsically linked, you know. Exactly. Like, the, like you, can, you can have animal liberation, wow, brilliant, but what, but what about all the starving, the starving hungry humans? <sighs> That yeah, have, yeah. That don't have that have to be liberated too. It's it's all interconnected. And to hear, I haven't actually heard about that group before, so I'm definitely gonna have to do my research. Yeah, yeah. Um, they're an amazing group, and there's some really good um resources on them. There's a really good like short video which I'm gonna like put in the show notes and like share on the Instagram page as well. Uh, by a person called well, like two people called Lonely Vegans, and they talk about mm-hmm. the history of move um but yeah no i really recommend anybody watching or listening rather (laughs) to (laughs) research um move um and sort of collective liberation because it's like like you said like animal liberations is one of my main goals but like how we can but like at the same time why wouldn't you want to liberate queer people trans people and humans in general you know like it's just yeah, no, yeah I think that sort of mindset that that isn't what we're fighting for um, is kind of one of the most sort of problematic mindsets in the vegan movement. But we'll come to that later. That brings us nicely on to oppression, really. So would you like to talk a little bit about sort of the philosophy of oppression and... Um, 
sort of yeah where you're at with that and what inspires you yeah definitely so obviously I think philosophy of oppression is a really like big big word and I feel like you would need maybe about 25 books that are all (laughs) really really thick to even like scratch the surface so this is sort of like books that I've read that I feel really well I take that bit out (laughs) (laughs) that I that I feel really um highlights oppression and the issues that we see and those two books are oppression and liberty by simone vey and okay. also the pedagogy of the oppressed by paulo frere and these are two books that i've been studying in a in a radical philosophy module at uea yeah. where we were learning about sort of radical left-wing thinkers and um how they would want to solve some of the biggest issues of the world it was a really good module um especially for Mm -hmm. radical thinkers like myself um so Mm. so oppression and liberty um by Simone Weil sort of started on a a critique of Marxism I should say and um this was after the Russian Revolution the USSR and um well when Marx's theory was took as gospel for them to be liberated for communism to be put in place as such however as we all know, oppression was not got rid of during the USSR and it actually became mm-hmm. worse. I think Marx's key theme to eliminating oppression was to abolish private property and to abolish money, which, OK, I, I don't disagree. But that yeah. happened. That happened in the USSR. And from that, oppression was still great because there was still a tyrant dictator. There was still a system of oppressive forces put onto the country. And this mm-hmm. sort of really fueled Vey into reconsidering and redesigning oppression and what she thought it to be. Um, yeah. She said that the many setbacks and failures experienced through Marxist ideas were were effective in saying that maybe it's not going to work and this for me sort of on a bit of a a bit of a um t- uh, going going off subject for a second this really mm-hmm. made me think because throughout my sort of political development i'd always considered myself quite a marxist like yeah, you hear yeah. that word coming across all the time and you're like yeah i'm a marxist i'm i'm left wing i i believe in like the abolishment of money i believe everyone should be equal stuff like that and this was before i was even vegan mm-hmm. however once when, when i read this book in my first year at uni it just made me go oh crap she she's right you know like mm. she's saying all these things about how Marx actually got it wrong. And it I literally went on a philosophical sort of world <laughs> after reading this book because all of my political thought had just been completely rewritten in, yeah. in like a chapter, pretty much. Because this is her critique of Marxism is quite short and it just made my brain explode. I was just like, oh my gosh, like I've gotten it so wrong. So she she likes to take the key ideas from from Marx and sort of put it into her own philosophy of oppression so she would say that oppression is a specific social organization which is a very big term to use that is as a that is a consequence of the unstable struggle for power and the principal structures of labor and it limits the individual from experiencing the world to the full extent of his or her capability so I've quoted that from the book yeah but sort of like what does that mean is sort of the next thing so an unstable struggle for power I mean it sort of says it on the chin you've got those power imbalances in society you've got the upper class and the middle class, the lower class, the homeless. Mm-hmm. And then I think we can bring animals into this because yeah. they're 
because they're oppressed in I mean you can bring animals into any argument with oppression mm-hmm. but I think I think it's very it's very good to bring them in because they're given even less sort of freedom yeah. and that unstable that unstable power dynamic of everyone being seen as lower or higher than the other um whether you're a human animal or a non-human animal whether you're rich or whether you're poor is is definitely very true and um she said that sort of the main issue and this is more like a, a, a human animal sort of sort of problem and I'll get into that too um was the split of the intellectual and the manual um so um just intellectual and manual so this sort of like leads on to the second point of what they were saying and it's the split of the intellectual and the manual work um and this is what is seen in the power imbalances in society so um, she she said that the people that have the most wealth and the most class, the higher class, they all do the intellectual work, and the people of the lower class do the manual work. And there's no integration. There's mm-hmm. there's no there's no acceptance for what you're doing. So she actually spent a year working in a factory. She's a very um, ill health woman, and she put herself in a lot of danger doing this. Yeah. Um, she actually died when she was 45 wow. and a lot of people speculate whether the year she spent in the factory did something to her lungs mm-hmm. um but she she came from a very um wealthy background and she obviously was very left-wing and wanted to know just what it was like to be lower class <laughs> so spent a year like immersing herself into it so that she could better like uh, fight for them yeah really definitely. Cool. um especially in that time I say that a lot, but honestly, with philosophy, I'm just like all of it. <laughs> when you actually hear someone saying saying something you agree with, it's like, wow, they're not they're not modern. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so so sort of what I was saying from this, she sort of said that the modern of her time human that was in the working class lived as cogs in a machine. They didn't think about what they were doing or have any true true um acceptance or true happiness they were just instruments crushed by what she called collectivity which was a a a central concept that compromises industry and the state as the only thing of importance and um she she said that like anyone that wasn't of an upper class just lived as a cog fueling collectivity which is incredibly interesting and this sort of this sort of leads on to what I was going to say going to say next, which is just the fact that one one person can't truly be free if they don't have freedom in what they yeah, do. Yeah. So she she wasn't calling for such an extreme rework of the system and abolishment of this and moving away from that. She just wanted everyone to actually have a choice and to have intellectual capability to do what they want. And and so she so looking at this from work, she used to say that in her ideal world, you could be a dentist in the morning, you could be a horse rider in the daytime, and then you could be a I don't know, a singer in the <laughs> evening. Because because there's no set work, yeah. there's no set, you're the manual labourer, you're the manager, you're the mm-hmm. this. It revolu- It would revolutionise how we consider work and everyone could work together 
and make sure that the better jobs are done by all and that mostly everything that is made and everything that is developed is done by everyone that is interested so there's no there's no right you're in this factory so you've got to make the nail not even that you've got to make a head of the nail which is then going to be put into uh, the rest of the nail, which is then put into a chair, which will then be put into a house. Yeah. You know, it leads it leads on to that constant flow of alienation from what you're doing in your work. And I think I think it's a really interesting sort of philosophy of oppression to to put into place. Just this talking about talking about humans on this on this dichotomy of the intellectual and the manual and having them come together. But taking it one step further, I think you can make a lot of parallels between activism here too. Yeah. So you have a lot of people just acting on, acting on impulse, and then you have a lot of people that don't do any, um, that, that act and actually think about what they're doing, and they get a lot more done. And I think that's really interesting. But on another sense, you have a lot of people that might have brilliant views about how we should go about go about fixing oppression but then they never act yeah on it. so so people you've got people just doing the manual work in activism and you've got people just thinking about it and it's about sort of bringing all of that together so you've got you've got activism yet you've also got action and thought within mm-hmm. that and i think i think it's yeah i think she 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 was a good start <laughs> I think she she pre she predated um, Frere, which is the second book I'm going to mm-hmm. talk about, which goes a lot deeper into oppression. Yeah. Um, but she, yeah, she really did start that sort of dialogue about right. We need to rethink left wing thought, and we need to rethink what oppression could be and how we're going to rework it in a way that will work. I think, I think where she went wrong personally because now that i'm so interested in collective liberation is that i think her her argument does become a little bit void when we start trying to put it in yeah sure. um which i mean is okay because it's all it's all a conversation and a dialogue which i mean i'll get into why that's important too but i think why i think yeah why what she done brilliantly with was trying to rework a society that would be equal on all sort of intellectual regard, which I think is amazing. And I think in terms of in terms of thinking of oppression and thinking how we're going to save it, we need as many thinking how we're mm-hmm. going to stop it. We need as many people to be given the ability to work on their intellect and work on their intelligence. Yeah. You know? yeah. Yeah, no, of course, and it's funny because she she actually called rele- um, revolution uh, an opiate. The word yeah. for which the labouring yeah the word for which the labouring masses die, but which lies empty. She hmm. says so. Revolution is just like yeah, we want revolution. We want we want to be free. We want to um, we don't want to be in the system anymore. But no one puts in a system of like okay, but what are we going to do next? Yeah, for sure. It's like. You- you can have the revolution, but what happens after? Yeah, definitely. And this is a this is one of the the pros of her philosophy of oppression is that she does try to put in a system of what would happen after. And this is something I think Marx failed at quite a lot, and why the USSR went so horribly mm-hmm. wrong. But yeah, I think I think that's a good sort of segue into the second thing I was going to talk, the second book I was going to talk about. But I don't know if you have any sort of comment yeah no i think it's really interesting um 
to sort of delve in to sort of see um like the sort of history if you will of these kind of movements oh sorry excuse me <laughs> um I'll start, I'll start again with that um yeah so i think it's really interesting to like look into like the history and like the philosophy side of it um and i think like with a lot of activists or like people who are very interested in animal rights and, and oppression and anarchism, we kind of miss out the history side of it and, like, the philosophy side of it. So, yeah, thank you for presenting us with this information. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's just... it's just I'm so incredibly interested by history yeah. and how, how human thought has sort of developed. And I just find it, another point, really interesting that this was only 100, 100 years ago this was sort of the main concern about sort of manual work and factory work. And I just, it's such an interesting dichotomy that a hundred years on from now, that's like, it's obviously still talked yeah. about, but almost issues have become more complex. Yeah, for sure. Because now we're looking at like things like intersectionality and animal rights yeah. and sort of this collective liberation that obviously we've been speaking mm-hmm. about and sort of looking at the history of, of revolutionary thought, we can really see how much it's come along to the sort of activism that we see today. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I think, I think Simone Weil will always have a will always have a place in in the philosophy of oppression conversation because she was one of the first that really took herself into the oppressed scenario. Yet was 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 unfortunately given that intellect to be able to talk about it and she used that to completely underpin the people that had taught her in the first place yeah which which obviously is the oppressor Mm -hmm. yeah interesting yeah it's just really yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah for sure um yeah it's given me something to think about yeah definitely so i think what Simone Weil does is good mm-hmm. and I think on a philosophy point of view it really does get those questions to beginning to be asked however I think the second the second book I want to talk about takes the philosophy of oppression just one step further yeah. and I think you'll find too that what is being said in this book is a lot more clearly point, clearly structured and put out and I mean I, I read Weil at the beginning of my um my uh module and i was like oh my gosh she's answered all the questions i'm so amazed <laughs> like i i love this woman so much and then i read paulo frere and i was like oh okay so she didn't answer all of these questions <laughs> and actually this guy's got it right <laughs> i think it's an interesting thing when you study philosophy because you think you know what you know and yeah all of it will just slowly be pinned, like un- unstrung apart in front of you. And you're going to, if studying philosophy, you rework your thoughts and your feelings on the world so many times because you just read more and more. And then you're like, oh crap, I, I was wrong about this. I need to rework, rework my view. Yeah, I think that's but really interesting this is... to be able to sort yeah, of definitely. recognize like the progression as well and like realize or like maybe not initially realize okay i'm open to changing my my view sort of thing to when i'm presented with new philosophy or new text or or what have you so yeah i think that's really cool yeah of course and i think maybe this is why 
my my views on sort of the connections obviously with collective liberation with animals and and human animals sort of came came to be what it was mm-hmm. like just reading all these books and having all my, my opinions changed constantly was definitely sort of the leading predicate to why my views on animals became so like ra- well, radical I mean I wouldn't call them <laughs> radical I'd call them radical, but um but they sort of became so sort of socially radical and I, I became so extreme with my animal like liberty yeah. in my views and I think it was because of everything I was reading and I was having all of my all of my ideas on the world questioned and yeah it's a really it's a really good thing and I think that's actually a really good sort of natural segue to Paulo Freire. So Pedagogy of the Oppressed was the title of his book and um, pedagogy means education so um, education like liberation through educating methods and um his his book is amazing honestly it's completely revolutionary and um i couldn't put it down when i was reading it and um central to the like formulation of the book i'd I'd say talks about like the oppressed consciousness and the oppressor consciousness they're like the way they look at the world at themselves their beliefs ethics and fears and how they motivate them and um it's sort of like the first bit I want to talk about and how um, how his book is a lot more betterly linked to speciesism and the yeah. issues surrounding that, I think. But, um, yeah, so the oppressor consciousness, he likes to call it, sort of has a number of things that, that builds it up so that the oppressor becomes deep-rooted to what they are. So he, he uses the phrase, to be is to have. So the ne- almost the necessity of conquest and having material objects. So he created out. He he. Fred pointed out that the the oppressor. So the this could be like the the farmer or the the manager, the the government. I mean, you could call so many different things. Yeah, oppressor. yeah. Um, equates being with having, and being is in the class of have. So the more the more things you own equates to your state of being. So your possessions and how much money you earn, the things or people you, or or um, like the things or people or animals or any of these things that you say that you own, because these things are all owned by some people, and indeed the entire world um, is how you, how you are and what your state of being is. The oppressor doesn't look at life as a beautiful thing or as something that has a quality in mm-hmm. they look at it as how many things can they own how much money can they make what profit can we make and this is like his first sort of idea about the oppressor consciousness and um i think that's really interesting because he wasn't talking about animals no but we can really we can really link this to animal liberation yeah, yeah. when we look at the oppressors of animals it is always how many can they get? How much profit can they make off these beings? How many, how, how uh, sustainable or unsustainable? I mean, sustainable in methods of how they make the most profit. Mm-hmm. Can they do it? So you look at factory farms. They don't care about the yeah, beings in yeah. there. They want to make the most amount of profit possible. 
and this is the oppressor consciousness um that Frey was talking about and i think this is why i think his philosophy goes one step further to um to they because even in this first step we're already making these parallels between animal liberation yeah, yeah i think you can't have the philosophy of oppression unless it can be correlate correlated to the impression of like non-human mm-hmm. um animals so um yeah so and then the next sort of thing he talks about is like the division that lies in our possession and this sort of is what um is what they was talking about with obviously um manual workers and not being able to integrate fully into their work not being paid as much as the intellectual workers um but since the oppressor is always almost always a minority because obviously the vast majority of of um beings are the ones being oppressed mm-hmm. um they keep the oppressed isolated so they might promote a leader they might put themselves to be someone that is of of a positive regard but in reality by and this might and this might be through like pay rises or or putting themselves to be free range when they're actually not yeah. or a government acting on the interests of the people but going against them in their own sort of private private conversations these are all good examples of that um so in but in reality when they're doing all of these things it's actually just to keep the oppressed isolated to put them in that that myth that the world that they live in is okay because if if the oppressor can make the oppressed think that everything's fine Mm. then there's less likely for a revolution to happen wow yeah if if we can make if we can make humans believe that animals are all okay you know that the farming farming industry is fine um it it doesn't matter look animals they they don't share the same consciousness as us of all of these awful things that we hear then by fueling that rhetoric fueling that rhetoric it's making it so much less likely for people to start caring because they're dividing us and they're divide they're dividing the oppressed from each other in like not in the human animal sense and they're dividing us from non-human um animals as well by making it seem like that connection isn't there mm-hmm. yeah and this is a second i mean obviously what i'm bringing into animals is how i'm developing his theory because he didn't um he yeah, didn't write about yeah i think that's really interesting for people who are listening who may not be familiar with frere but also you're talking about um animal liberation as well so i think that's so interesting because like i never really thought of it that way obviously we all sort of in the vegan movement do talk about sort of like don't buy the free range lie or don't buy the humane lie and i always thought of that like sort of as a uh, marketing but i think it's like yeah i think that's quite an interesting theory that you've presented um mm. that it's sort of a way to protect the um the deemed oppressor um the farmers um to keep their profits flowing sort of thing that's like their way of protecting themselves when you know when undercover activists expose these places you know it's never it's never as nice as as they they seem to make out um yeah so i think that's really interesting um that you've brought that to light yeah, no, definitely, and I, I, and you know, it's true as well. This division that we see, it's, it's, 
You know, and I think another, if we're going into deeper, a really good um, example is like um, refugees and immigrants. Yeah, yeah. Because that, that divide is put into us. Like we don't call them humans. Yeah. We don't call absolutely. We don't call them children or parents or lovers or um, doctors. All these things that they are mm-hmm. that would make us the same as them. We call them immigrants. Yeah. Refugees. And it automatically puts that divide yeah. that keeps that keeps us isolated from absolutely, them. Absolutely, absolutely. And obviously we obviously we see that in animals too. Yeah. And 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 like so he, he even says more. So the next thing he says is um the next sort of oppressor of consciousness is manipulation. So um and this sort of links in quite well with what we've um said, but it, it happens that through all these elaborate myths that life is okay and this is the final picture and this is all you're going to get from your life um it manipulates the oppressed Mm -hmm. to to not think of anything different or one step further it manipulates the people that aren't oppressed in that category to not want to help others yeah so not want to help animals not want to help uh, the lower class not want to help immigrants etc etc because they believe the same myth they're manipulated by the oppressor too they don't want to see where the problems lie so they just accept these myths that are our general worldview mm-hmm. and don't do anything about it and live their whole life in a bubble and that's fueled by the oppressor consciousness of manipulation Fred says yeah yeah really interesting and so finally, yeah, no, it is. It's brilliant. Like, it's not very long either. It's it's only about one hundred and fifty pages. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is really quite small, like really, and yeah. it's quite easily accessible because mm. it was written in the nineteen forties. It's not one of those really obscure. You've got to read the page ten times sort of philosophy books. It is sort of written yeah, in a language. Cool. Yeah, it's written in a language which is easy enough to understand. Mm-hmm. Um. And the, I mean, funnily enough, um, I don't think I mentioned this, and I really should have, but um, Paulo Freire was Brazilian. Okay. And he's he's honestly the only Brazilian philosopher I can I can name, which is wow, like, genuine. Yeah. Um, and his work went quite unnoticed for quite a while for pretty much the same reasons of the of the theories he was writing. You know, he came from a LEDC country. Mm-hmm. He was quite a poor man. He. Um, did not live in sort of the Western world. So all of these things that he's writing about to sort of illustrates why his work was ignored for so long. As well. Yeah, yeah, that's crazy. He was, yeah, he was the oppressed within his own theory. And I think that's why he was so passionate and why everything was spoken about so coherently. I think with they, she she might have cared and she she um, obviously put herself in a factory for a year and stopped all of her studies and to get a better picture. But at the end of the day, she didn't come from a very um, oppressed world. I mean, obviously, she was a woman in the 30s, which is a definite sign of oppression. But yeah. she was comfortable and she was able to go to school and she was able to do all of these things. And I think that I think it illustrates the difference in their writing. Why Frere maybe went into this in more detail is because he was talking more from his own experience. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, she was too with being with being a woman, but he he he's talking. I mean, I'm making these comparisons to different things, but he is talking about government and and global oppression is like the main predicate. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think him being Brazilian as well, I think, is interesting that he's 
so passionate about that because it caused a lot of issues in his own sort of intellectual credibility shall shall we call it yeah but and like that's a good segue onto the last um oppressor consciousness if you will which is cultural Mm -hmm. invasion and um he he's and this, this can this can be seen across so many different times but he basically said that a really good way the oppressor um what oppresses is from um taking a culture and picking it apart and putting in their culture instead so this was obviously seen in colonization of the 1700s but from a more sort of recent point of view um i so obviously we've spoken about this but i spent a month in borneo a few years yeah yeah and i did i did quite a bit of volunteering in the rainforest and i was um planting trees and building schools it was absolutely incredible like the most the most morally just the morally insightful experience I've ever done yeah I can imagine Um, oh god absolutely phenomenal but a really good example of this is um like the marginalization and the westernization that I saw in Borneo Mm. so I went to a city about four times in my stay in between going to different villages and it was called Kota Kinabalu and it was one of the maddest places I'd ever been in my life and this cultural invasion was so present like Mm -hmm. honestly a really really an image that I can't get out of my head is I was on this big main road and on the left of me were these massive industrialized skyscraper buildings and all these workers and it literally it could have been London you know wow really did look like a western world the other side of the road was a slum literally the other side sort of being hidden by these big tall buildings and it it, i think it's a key and it's a key example of this cultural invasion of this suppressor consciousness that fred's talking about um another good example from borneo was not not good it's really sad but um Mm -hmm. kenny who owned one of the camps that i was um I was working in, I was building a community centre. He grew up in a rubber farm. He'd never gone to school. Yeah. Because uh, his family just, like, tapped rubber from trees all day and sold it to, like, big industries like Nike and uh, different sportswear brands and mm-hmm. stuff. And he got by. Like, it, it, was, it, was a, it wasn't a sustainable way of life, obviously. And that's the oppression that we really don't see in the UK. It's children yeah. from the age of three tapping rubber so that they can get bread on their table, you know. That is true. For sure. True inequality. But because of the cultural invasion, the westernization, and um like palm oil plantations and rubber tree plantations that are being seen in Southeast Asia, he was completely put out of work. His whole family were almost starving to death because rubber became so cheap to manufacture because they yeah. industrialized it in the eight not in the eighties, in the early two um two thousands. And he got complete his family were completely out of work because of this cultural invasion of the West. And I think it's two quite quite modern examples to this point that Fred talks about that I thought I'd bring in that yeah. I've seen I've seen with my own eyes you know wow yeah that's that's incredible really um you've actually seen that um yeah and um, I mean this is kind of kind of a bit off topic but another thing that just broke my heart is we were driving through um I was on a coach on my way to a jungle camp and we were driving through um this really built up rainforest and it was beautiful like everywhere you looked was just like colors of green and we were going all up this mountain and then we came down this mountain then all of a sudden there was nothing yeah there was just emptiness Fuck. 
almost looked like a desert but apparently two years prior that was that was the rainforest and they oh just leveled, they'd leveled the whole thing to the ground for plum oil plantations and I mean you can you can care about the I mean I've always cared about the environment but until you've seen something like that right in front of you it really does make you just go <sighs> yeah and i i was was honestly in tears because we'd we'd seen all these animals these orangutans these monkeys um uh we'd heard that there were elephants in the jungle near where we were and like beautiful beautiful animals and to think like they were they were there they were in these trees they were yeah oh my god and they've just they've just all been killed you know just what for palm oil (sighs) For, yeah. for, your shit, for your body butter or for your Nutella. Yeah, okay. that's really um, important, actually. I think, like, um, within the vegan movement, um, there isn't enough emphasis on um, palm oil, I think, and how, obviously, it's an environmental issue. It's also an animal rights issue and yeah. quite, obviously, a human rights issue as well. Um mm. I think, I think with sort of um, Western veganism, um, it needs to be talked about more. Um, is there anything else you want to say on that? Well, it's just, yeah, reiterating, really. It's just, it's it's killing thousands of animals, I'd yeah. say, every day. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, was, in, I was in the uh, Malaysian part of Borneo, so the northern part of the island, um, and because uh, the island basically half of it's owned by Malaysia, half of it's owned by Cambodia. But Malaysia actually have tighter restrictions on deforestation, basically trying to combat it as much as they can while also making profit. Because like, this is the, their country's main source of income. They sell they sell their land to big industrialized companies for like hundreds and thousands of millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. And uh, or ringgits under sort of um, Malaysian currency. And then yeah. they have their land flattened, but the, the country's doing well, you know, in a lot of ways. They're industrializing, they're trying to become like the Western world, but they're destroying the environment and their animals by doing so. But they almost don't have a choice. Mm-hmm. Right, uh, and, yeah. Sorry, diverging. So mm-hmm. so Malaysia actually had tied to restrictions on um, deforestation and the Cambodian half did. And what I saw while I was in the Malaysian half of Borneo was so, so shocking. And to think that they have better restrictions on it than the Cambodian part uh, scares me because I just wonder how bad is it in other places in the world? Because it's going on, it's going on globally, you know, like these plantations are going on in South America and Central America in some places in Africa. And it's, it's destroying habitats and thus destroying the animals that live there yeah definitely their biggest method is by burning them down like they just burn down miles and miles of of rainforest level it all down and then create these plantations like the vegans have got to think like what happens to those animals you know yeah yeah they they get they get burned down too it's it's fucking oh sorry it's horrible yeah it's absolutely horrible yeah, I mean, absolutely, and I think like, I think in the in the in the vegan movement, I think palm oil needs to be more more discussed um, as a animal rights issue. Like, we can have all of these um, so called vegan products, but you know, we've got um, 
palm oil in them and say these cruel in quotation marks cruelty free uh animal uh sorry cruelty free sort of body products shampoos conditioners and um that sort of thing and yeah okay you've it's it's there isn't any animal testing which is an important issue but you know it might have palm oil in it which yeah. also has a victim involved in an animal sense as well so i think Definitely. for um the west and veganism i think we really need to think about palm oil more and sustainability not just from an environmental aspect but from an well from an environmental aspect but also encompassing the animal rights part and 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 sort of see the intersections of them of them both yeah of course and you know it's so funny because like we can make a comparison back to the second point what Freya was saying which is division yeah yeah it's because we're all so divided from one another and we're all very con- we we all are based in our own country and you're either a western world or you're non-western world sort of thing that yeah. conversation isn't being had isn't being had because Definitely. We have that division within us yeah so for sure if that division wasn't there that the that whatever oppressor is putting in place and we were actually able to converse with one another and compare issues mm-hmm. then i think maybe it would be a bigger issue in, in western veganism but because that conversation can't be had because of division it's being ignored exactly um and yeah I think being, it's i think it's brilliant uh, philosophically when a theory can be uh, compared upon and you can like link lots of different parts of the theory to the same thing yeah so sort of, i think it solidifies it in my in my sense but we went on a bit of a tangent then but i think it's good. <laughs> i think that's really sure. good because it just sort of talk, we're talking about common issues which i think a lot of people when they hear philosophy they they all think it's about the past it's like oh well this is written this was written back then you know so it's not, yeah yeah not something we can relate to now we've got to think only on action and only on um what we're going to do in the here and the present absolutely however like we've just had this big conversation about a real issue that's going on in borneo right now directly linked from philosophy from (laughs) yeah for sure and i think in veganism and in collective liberation learning about the thinkers and the thought behind what you stand for is really important in my opinion yeah it will really solidify your own views and it has for me too as as you can probably tell (laughs) (laughs) amazing yeah you're so right and i think i think the history um part of it is very important with animal rights or any sort of form of um activism or uh being an advocate for animals or any anything really i think it's really important just to look into that um history um and i think also looking into the philosophy the philosophy side of it is very important as well which you've um yeah which you've raised yeah i I think before we go into any crazy (laughs) point uh points (laughs) day of lockdown um and i'm pint pint free and that's on the mind only (laughs) kidding um (laughs) um yeah so before we go off into any crazy tangents i think um this whole section of what we talked about um and starting to talk about palm oil and things like that really really brings us on to something which i think is really uh important sort of the negatives of veganism or the negatives more particularly of western veganism sort of privilege and then 
having your own privilege and also the sort of food poverty um are you happy to to to, to go into that yeah um <laughs> you're gonna have to edit this out but i had a little bit more to say on frere oh shit sorry it's okay it sounded like i was finished but i just wanted to emphasize like dialogue quickly and okay, like cool. a bit more about the um okay. is that okay yeah just okay future ollie you need to put this in before you start talking about going on to the next topic okay go mm-hmm. <laughs> but you can edit all this out you're gonna have to listen to all of it yeah, yeah, yeah exactly that's why i said that just for my editing side of me side of okay. it <laughs> cool all right so what did you say you're talking about um sorry <laughs> i cut you off no 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 it's fine I, I we were having a conversation but i'm just trying to i'm just trying to link it Okay, I'll just talk more about Borneo. Cool. But, um, yeah, and I just think it's really important to sort of pull those parallels um, together with philosophy um, of the past and the issues now, and I hope I've sort of highlighted that. And I'm sort of going to, I'm going to gloss over this next part because I think looking at the oppressor in his philosophy is, is way more apparent but he also talks about the consciousness of the oppressed he talks about the duality of the oppressed we we compare ourselves to what to one another and we we but at the same time we don't see those similarities so we're like all these people are struggling and but at the end of the day i'm the one struggling and that's what matters most Mm. but we need to sort of draw away from that and make it into a real duality and sort of internalize that image to other people and to animals and to um, any sort of oppressed scenario. And they yeah. also have the immersion in their environment. They, they're they so engulfed in the here and now. And I say they, it's us. Like we're so engulfed in the here and now mm. and the where we live and all the stress in our life, like our work and are the kids okay? Or should I ring my parents? Or mm-hmm. I've got university going on. All of these things and they're very individual to us that we just accept the world that we live in and we mm-hmm. don't we don't think anything of it and we don't want to help other people because we're completely immersed in our own surroundings and that's the second oppressing consciousness that we have and then we also have from this the fear of freedom the fear of risk mm-hmm. when you've known something for so long and you're comfortable why would you throw it all away for an unknown mm-hmm. so why why go for a revolution like you you live in a house you might be really depressed in your job you might be being oppressed and struggling with money every day when the top one percent are billionaires but what would happen what would happen if you revolt and it goes wrong you know what would happen if you make a change and you become worse off people become scared they don't want change they're scared of change so they they just stay in the oppressing um forces that they're in Mm. and they doubt that it can never be any better because it's all we've ever known and it is like things might have gotten better from like the 1500s or the ancient greek time or whatever but mm-hmm. there's always been a pyramid effect there's always been the people on the top and the people below and yeah, the levels of that and that is all we've ever known since human civilization so thinking about a true global liberation revolutionary movement where we underpin that whole thing and start again is scary you know like it's it's totally yeah. human to be scared of change 
and that is what that is what governs the oppressed to stay in those scenarios and not advocate for revolution and i've glossed over that a bit more than stuff about the oppressor um but yeah i'm like my final notes of um, my final notes of this book would definitely be like how he would go about changing this and i think Mm -hmm. there's sort of two main points and that is the importance of dialogue and objectifying reality and so Mm -hmm. so obviously pedagogy of the oppressed we're talking about education he he talks about how the education system fuels this oppressive system that we live in because of something called like the banking method of education so you know when you put money into a piggy bank and it just sits there yeah yeah that's that's the um the comparison he puts in education we see today you have knowledge put into your brain it's all thrown at you there's no integration with what you're learning and it Mm -hmm. just sits there and you don't do anything with it and you don't make any sort of like positive change this it consists of just communications which are which are passive and it's a fragmented view of reality to make the oppressed adapt into the existing oppressive reality that we live in, which is that the top people feed us whatever they want us to hear and we take it in and most people just accept it, you know, like Mm -hmm. like news, you know, you don't see anything about animal liberation or or what's going on in Africa or what's all the climate crisis. You don't see any of that because realistically Mm -hmm. the top 1% don't want you to see that yeah that sort of that sort of philosophy is ingrained into us since we're children since Mm -hmm. we're being educated we're not we're not told to integrate with what we're learning we're told to just write an exam and forget it yeah that's what they they want us to do and he talks about the learner and the teacher not being spectators of knowledge but being recreators of it and he says Mm -hmm. obviously the importance of dialogue so all learning and teaching should be dialogue dialogical and they they should all be talking to one another and trying to come up with problem solving methods and this should be in like all themes of education so whether it's in your work or whether it's within children whether it's in politics there shouldn't just be one person regurgitating information it should be it should be a constant equal stance and I think that's really interesting and that would slowly I guess try and break away from this oppressor oppressed consciousness that we see because it's bringing the oppressed and the oppressor as equals Mm -hmm. in in their education and in their in their knowledge because let's say the teacher is the oppressor and the student is the oppressed he does use this um similarity the the teacher then becomes equal to the student because the student is expected to bring in their opinion on things and their knowledge and is meant to grow Mm -hmm. with the teacher and this can be thin you know in any sort of oppressed oppressor dynamic um as a very good way of sort of going about sort of radical change and in, in terms of like revolutionary thought and and how we go about doing a revolution it's all about integrating the action and the thought together and yeah. the, like so that the student would be the 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 empty thought that he talks about and the obviously the teacher is the action of teaching but mm-hmm. moving away from that in, in in activism there should be just as many people um talking about the issue and educating the on the issue then there should be people acting on it and trying to do radical things to make a change because if you just have one or the other it doesn't work 
Yeah, yeah. Like, if you just have action, but no one knows what you're doing, then you're not going to have any change. Like, you might be doing something good, but if no one else knows or no one is aware that there's a problem, then you can be doing this as much as you like, but it's not going to cause a global change. Similarly, you can talk about activism or you can talk about rights of something or someone or Mm -hmm. um, someone, I mean, as much as you like. But until, um, until the action of actually making that change is put in place then nothing's going to happen from just dialogue. It needs to be an integration of the two. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's sort of what you've been doing, I mean, from your first podcast. I mean, the fact that you, you're you going out and doing quite radical action-based stuff while also still doing the talks and still doing the big protests is exactly the sort of revolutionary process that Freya thinks we should be going through. Yeah which is really cool and something I want to get involved in more. I want to, I want to get involved in the, the action side more than I have been and actually putting into practice the ethics that I think and doing, doing some things to really make my mark and actually save these animals that I'm, that I'm advocating for, like with my blog yeah, and yeah. with this podcast and stuff. So, yeah, that's basically... <laughs> yeah, that's basically what I would say on the philosophy of oppression then and those two yeah. I really recommend if you guys have time which we all do during lockdown to um pick them up they're they're both they're both quite cheap you can get them on Amazon um they're they're really really good books and I hope I've explained them well I am no expert so there might have been some there might have been some discrepancies there might be something you disagree with but that's all what this dialogue and this philosophy is for you know so i hope i've done my best to explain it yeah i I think so (laughs) i think it's um really interesting and gives um well people who may not have ever thought about these sorts sorts of things something to really think about something even me something to think about um and sort of i think it's interesting when you're doing these things, sort of activism and stuff, to think, oh, well, I'm actually living in line with some sort of philosophy and you, you don't even quite realise it. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. Um, yeah, I think that's really interesting. I, I think where we've talked about all these different issues and um, sort of uh, the palm oil thing earlier and um, environmental sort of damage of these things um i think that leads us really nice and naturally um onto sort of the negatives of uh of this western veganism um and sort of privilege and uh, having our own privilege and then um sort of uh relating to that sort of food poverty um and things like that so would, would you like to uh sort of lead that discussion for us yeah no of course and like this this is a really really good example of what we were saying earlier about how all of this is so linked um mm-hmm. i mean I'm, I'm being incredibly raw and incredibly honest but i come i come from an all right background you know like my mum and dad they both mm. work i can afford to have vegan vegan versions of pretty much anything i like like if i want sausage, yeah if i want sausages like cool i can go to the shop and buy some vegan ones if i if i want to eat like really expensive vegan chocolate or stuff like that then i can go out and do that and i'm acting so much on my white privilege as a vegan yeah and it's something yeah. that i think 
it's okay if you're aware of, you know, and you're acting. Yeah. And if definitely. you're actively trying to make a change, then that's fine. But this sort of this brings me on to like one of the first problems of veganism that I that I think is really apparent is when you've got people shouting at other people on the street, like no matter what, um, not not trying to like what Freya said, not creating a dialogue. Mm-hmm. Just being angry, yeah. just being like, why aren't you doing this? You should be vegan. You you are an insult to to like non non human animals. You're you're insulting liberation. All all these sorts of things. When it's like mm. when it's like, well, it's it's really good for you that you you're able to afford to do this. But realistically, do you know this person's uh, financial situation? Maybe they're in maybe they're in an abusive relationship, you know, and they they can't even cook, yeah. they can't even cook their own food. And I could go into so many examples, but it's just this this privilege that that I think a lot of vegan a lot of vegans have that they are mm-hmm. right and everyone is able to do what they can do. Yeah. You know, yeah. And, and absolutely. In the Western world that might be um there are there are flats um in in sort of the lower oh my god, right, scrap that. I just I just started like ten times. It's cool. That's fifty minutes exactly, so it's cool. But um Yeah. So there's there's flats in some places in the UK when you've got families of like four or five children and the ma- the mothers can't even aff- and the fathers can't even afford to put anything other than like chicken nuggets and chips on the plate. They live off um free school meals. They yeah they can't afford to be healthy if they were to be vegan. And I think that's another mm. thing, like with these children that are living in poverty. And the families that do that, you can't expect them to to go vegan because they'll be malnourished. Yeah. yeah. As as a vegan, you know that you've got to try harder to make sure you're getting all your nutrients and you're not getting yeah, you're not sure. getting gonna make yourself ill. And I think it's a very privileged position for us to be like, Oh yeah, you should be doing this and you're wrong when you're not, and not addressing the issues why they might not be able to. Yeah. Nothing yeah. that's think... sorry, carry on yeah i think that's really interesting and i think that's sort of i think it's probably what you're going to say now but i think that sort of brings us naturally at least uh and it, i think the main i think the main health argument for veganism should really be everybody should have access to healthy foods mm-hmm. um not sort of pointing the f- finger and saying oh i don't think i well personally i don't think veganism should be I don't think like the health argument of veganism should be revolving around macros and uh, gains <laughs> and yeah. stuff like that. I, I think that it should be that we should be talking about the sort of food security issues and yeah, um, everybody having some form of food and ideally healthy. Um, of course. Cause, I mean, like if you're because yeah. I'm I'm quite into my health stuff like I, I exercise mm-hmm. and I try and eat healthily that's got nothing it's got nothing to do with my veganism yeah like, it, it's yeah. good you know like vegan being vegan can be a healthy option but it's mm-hmm. not why you should be vegan like no. it's it, the animal rights is is why you should be vegan yeah but, yeah I think that's really important to distinguish as well um between sort of plant-based eating and sort of being a vegan i suppose um because you're still equally a vegan if you eat um if you eat linda mccartney sausages all, all day every day 
vegan Beyond burgers, uh, vegan milkshakes, and you eat all of these things, and then you still fight for animals, and um, yeah, you have all of these this philosophy, I suppose, of of veganism. I think it's quite, um, and obviously that it goes further with sort of what you wear, what you're, uh, if you wear things which are tested on animals and, and that as well, uh, as we all know. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think like that's sort of a very distinguished point. Like someone could um, eat all of those unhealthy foods, um, uh, you know, eat all the Beyond Burgers every single day um, and be a vegan. Yeah, or you could have somebody who has... Yeah, and I think you could have someone that's like a super health guru into yoga, not to like be judgmental, <laughs> but like into yoga. Not that there's anything wrong with yoga, I think yoga's cool. Uh, into yoga, having smoothie bowls every day. This is how I make my organic hummus, what I eat in a day videos, that sort of thing. And then they could be wearing leather on their feet. Exactly. They could have, exactly. you know, they could have things which are like tests on animals. Oh, you've um, they could still. You've hit the nail yeah. on the head there because it's like it's like, like a brilliant. Like being healthy is great. I love it. I mean, I I have my smoothie bowls and do my yoga, as you know. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, that cool. has nothing to do with my animal rights philosophy. You know, like I'm not I'm not a vegan because I want to be healthy. I'm a vegan. Because yeah, I care about yeah. The animals that I'm not eating, you know. And I think that's a really good thing to be made because at the same time, though, if you want to be super healthy and be vegan, that's awesome. Like, good for you. Yeah, yeah. But don't don't, like advocate that as your reason for being vegan, you know, because that really annoys me too. But I think we went on, we went on a bit of a tangent then, but I think going, (laughs) going on from what we were saying, obviously about access to health and access to healthy food and access to like, just just to be able like just access to food in general really just having enough to actually be nutritious and mm-hmm. not be in food poverty i think we we need to take i feel like as western vegans and that's what we are we're in the western world mm-hmm. it's it's hard to diverge away from the western world but you've got to yeah. consider like obviously we spoke about the camp leader kenny that i was from borneo that i was talking about yeah who literally lived on bread and rice most of his life and like the occasional chicken that he'd have to rare and that was mm. be the only thing that he'd eat for his whole yeah. childhood and he literally that would be what all the money that he would make his family would make is spent on that bread mm-hmm. that rice and rearing their chickens so looking at it from a non-western point of view how can you expect someone like that in the world to ever be able to go vegan without literally killing themselves yeah yeah like because they they would like what would he just have bread and rice as a growing child for his whole mm, for his whole childhood mm. he couldn't he would he would have died of malnourishment yeah. and and starvation and i think this is what this is this is a, another even bigger problem of veganism it's like you're not trying to think about what's going on in the rest of the world humanitarian wise and you're not trying to put that into your into your animal ethics because it's yeah. it, until we until we fix those problems until all countries cause i mean like sorry the end goal is for everyone to be vegan everywhere no matter where you're from yeah and the animals aren't eaten or used and they're treated as equals i mean animal liberation exactly. but how the hell is that meant to happen in in africa 
how is that meant to happen yeah. in mm. Southeast Asia, in South America, until the fundamental poverty and uh, wealth issues in humans are sorted? Yeah, it's, definitely. It, it's all intertwined. It all comes back to the humanitarian issue of of wealth and overabundance mm-hmm. of wealth in the Western world. Because, I mean, I think it's a very... <laughs> very naive point of view to think everyone could be vegan in the world we live in today yeah definitely i think that's a really important point mm-hmm. and i mean until until we fix those issues we we won't be able to fix the issue of global veganism but then yeah for sure but then are the two issues the same because i think animals um have just as much moral worth as a human i don't think there's any yeah i don't think there's any discrepancy there so technically it's still the yeah. same problem it's just liberation yeah like it's not animal liberation or human liberation it's just fuel full living being liberation <laughs> yeah so exactly the poverty issue is just as much linked as the as the issue of veganism because they're all we're all creatures in this world being oppressed in different ways yeah so but yeah, I don't know if you, that's what I would say about some of the problems of veganism. I don't know whether you've got any more. Um, yeah, uh, I think I think that's I think we're pretty much in in alignment there. But I think one of the things, one of the interesting things, is sort of the anarchist approach um, of mutual aid. I think if vegans kind of ad- adapted to using that. So and looking at sort of solidarity and that sort of thing in the sense of like um, I'm privileged to have um, all this vegan food. So one day a week I'm going to make a big pot of it and I'm going to, um, you know, uh, especially now in this COVID lockdown, mm. I'm going to go and I'm going to give food to my neighbours. Um I think like that's something which is really cool and looking at uh, working as a community um, is something that's really, really uh, something that I would love to see for the future um, Uh, as sort of an anarchist. Um, And I think, yeah, I think that's sort of talk. It's a bit of like, yeah, I'm definitely in agreement. I think vegans need to think about like what we could do to help those not even... Even in even in the West, yeah, of course, um, who struggle with these issues, um, sort of homelessness mm. and things like that. And I think in I would really recommend people in the West um, just to look into Food Not Bombs, um, Food Empowerment Project, and um, look at what we can do to help non-humans and humans at the same time. And okay. it's also from a sort of publicity if you want to call it that it's gonna it's gonna help your vegan group if you're gonna work together to help feed the homeless as such uh with vegan food once a week or maybe people are going to be more open to hearing your argument when it comes to animal liberation of course if that you're seen to be doing something positive for others then why would they not want to listen to what you're saying definitely you know that's like what we were saying about um obviously with Fred's book and sort of educate education and dialogue and um this this divide that we were speaking about earlier on that that sort of Mm. stops people in oppression sort of being able to see the similarities in each other 
yeah what you've just said would be a perfect way to go against that by being like oh look they're helping people so maybe we should listen to what they're saying yeah. about animals it's taking apart that divide yeah um just one quick other point i just thought of um i think if anyone listening to this is anything to do with um say a meet the victims uh campaign um so anyone that's not aware meet the victims is a is a group um that goes into farms and documents what goes on in farms and stays in there with a big group with an inside and an outside team and won't leave until the um press is there um obviously anybody that ha- and to, sorry to do that you have to have um equipment so safety gear um sort of like these yeah these different things Mm -hmm. masks and things so if anybody has those and is from meet the victims please 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 i really recommend any of you who have these items just to go to especially with this what's going on now to please 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 donate them to um a hospital because nurses and doctors they need these equipment that they need it we can't do activism we can't do meet the victims at the moment so I think, like, put the animal rights agenda aside for the meantime and just think about what you could do with that uh, stuff which you've got, that equipment to help humans right now. And again, that's going to give you more publicity if that's what you care Definitely. about. And- it's going to make other people think, oh, look at these vegans. They've done this for us. So maybe when they're well again or, you know, someone that's seen that, they might see you doing a supermarket disruption and maybe say, oh, well, that's the kind group that donated this equipment to our hospital. Maybe I'll listen to them. Because unfortunately, you know, humans, most of us are inherently selfish and sometimes yeah. it'll take it'll take that selfish move, move, like, oh, yeah, they helped me, so now I'll listen to them. Some, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. that's what some people need. And it is bad. I mean, yeah. so I, I don't think like that. I don't th- I don't like to say, think I do. I like to try and think mm-hmm. very selflessly and put others first. But for, for other people, all they care about is themselves. So if you make an action yeah. of, of human help, then it's going to make them think about your your movement more. I mean, I've got to say a massive yeah, shout definitely. out to the um, Norwich Soup community in, in my city. Mm-hmm. So they... Um, they are in the city from Monday, Wednesday and Friday and uh, Saturday, I think. And they make big old pots of soup and they're all vegan. Wow. Um, it, so um, you get all of your money um, reimbursed by the charity if you make a vegan soup. Um, so you, okay, can, cool. you can if you would like make a, make a meat soup, but it won't really be advocated and you have to pay for it entirely yourself. Um, and they use, mm. they use those soups to feed like every single homeless person in Norwich pretty much. And then they advocate why they um, choose for their soups to be vegan and stuff as well. It's a really, wow. really positive sort of mutual aid movement. That's really, really cool. Um do they have like an Instagram or a Facebook? Yeah, I believe so. Norwich Soup Community. After cool. this, I will send it over. Yeah. Um. So that, if you're in the area, check that out. I'm gonna put that in the show notes. Um. So yeah, please check that out. That sounds like a really amazing, amazing thing. Going yeah, of course. Cool, homelessness is a big, a big problem in Norwich. So it's just about ways of mm-hmm. combating it. But we're a tiny little city in in retrospect to some of the other cities in the UK. And homelessness yeah. is just like surging up and up every year. So um, 
yeah movements like that and then also that sort of small community link to how how we can help animals too i think is really really cool yeah for sure amazing okay um i have a question for you so what what do you think about sort of the joey carbstrong slash earthling ed and more recently humane hancock style of youtube videos um that sort of have the titles vegan versus muslim or vegan versus trans activist what what, what's your take on that well i think from what oh that's a question (laughs) i think i think (laughs) we've spoken about obviously before i think it's incredibly problematic i mean especially using this anti-speciesist language that we do trying to be like Mm -hmm. human animals and non-human animals and that language to then almost put animals above oppression in in humans and minority groups because I think I think obviously animals are getting it a lot worse than a lot of humans are but to be like vegans Mm -hmm. against Muslims I mean I know they they eat meat you know after their fast on Ramadan they eat Mm -hmm. meat but instead of trying to this is going back to Frere instead of trying to implement dialogue and try and change their views and really underpin their system of religion it's just like, no, I'm just going to go against you, completely alienate that percentage of the population, which is going to make them never mm-hmm. even want to consider going vegan. What, just to make myself look good on a YouTube video? Because yeah. surely, the, surely veganism and the idea of veganism should be to try and make as many people be vegan as possible. We want this to be a worldwide mm-hmm. phenomenon. So to alienate such a big group of people in a video that millions of people other vegans are going to watch it just seems so counterproductive definitely definitely i i totally agree with you i I mean i know it's really it's really hard and i i think it's fueled a lot by a a rhetoric of anger and it's they Mm -hmm, feel all this emotion for these animals and like rightfully so that the anger which is a very human Actually, no, it's a very animalistic response, which just shows that similarity more. Hmm. That just that anger comes out and they don't actually rationalise and be like and yeah, and try and try and change. I think it's I think it's so so problematic. And we should be yeah. advocating for for revolutionary thought and action where we try and change the views of as many people as we can. So by by doing that in a video, it's not going to get the vegan movement anywhere. It might get views. Yeah. It might. It might. And yeah. Also, it might boost up your your ad revenue because people are going to think it's a taboo subject. But then, are are these people really vegan mm-hmm. for the animals, or are they vegan for their own their own wealth, which is a whole different sort of question. Yeah. Yeah. And I think. <laughs> I think that really is very true when it comes to sort of the Western mainstream vegan celebrity almost yeah. culture is um, a lot of ego boosting kind of stuff goes on. And I I don't know about I, I'm sure that most of these people who have started out um, have good intentions, but I think they're good intentions have been corrupted by unfortunately the money yeah. which they realize they can make definitely yeah i think earthling is a good, Ed, earthling really is a good example of that 
because I, yeah, I do actually yeah. think that man has incredibly good intentions and in terms of having a mm-hmm, in terms of too. having a dialogue with I mean I'll call say the oppressor just because the, the the podcast we've had he does try to do that mm-hmm. like he doesn't shout in the faces of farmers he actually does try to initiate a dialogue mm-hmm. however I do yeah, think the yeah. way he goes about doing it which is obviously for his own self gain, putting a camera in their face to make himself look good so that he gets more more views yeah. and thus more money is the problem. But at least he you know, at least he's implementing that dialogue and not not trying to alienate the farmers, but trying to make them see what they're doing is wrong. But, you know, maybe if he didn't Definitely. have a camera in their face and wasn't wasn't being <laughs> stressful for the sake of it, then then Yeah. Or... Yeah, and maybe if he wasn't thinking about the ad revenue and the monetization, <laughs> exactly because like we don't matter, you know, in, in this animal liberation yeah. movement, and uh, same same with liberation of all pe- all beings that are oppressed. You as an individual don't matter. Mm-hmm. It'd be what can yeah, you do yeah. to help other people? Be that, be that exactly. animal or yeah. human. Like how how can you? as an individual selflessly help them it's like when you have um hunt saboteurs and you don't ever know who they are because they're always they're always covering their yeah. face it's not about them they care about the, the fox that they're saving or the badger that... yeah that's... for sure i think that sorry um i think that's also like a even wider discussion about open rescue as well there's like uh especially I'm not going to say it's only in Australia, but I've seen a growing rise of it in Australia. Australia, of open rescue, where people are wearing, uh, sorry, not just you know, just wearing normal clothes, getting selfies with the piglets um, that they've rescued. Honorable that they've rescued a piglet, like big up, like that's cool. But like, I think that that's kind of a little bit irresponsible for two for a few reasons. One because um you're gonna sort of well people are gonna be able to find you as in the police are gonna be able to find you when you're doing these sorts of things um it could put the animal that you've liberated at risk um and also i think it's kind of just trying to fuel fuel your own ego and and be like look what i've done i'm so wonderful yeah i know like arguably i completely arguably yeah you know doing it once or twice fine you know if you you, you can you mm-hmm. can put something on social media that you're proud of so like if, if yeah, it's sure. like i've i mean a, a good example with obviously your social media you it's mostly it's mostly um just sort of like articles and stuff like that but then you'll check out badger sets and you might take a photo mm-hmm. and that's like absolutely fine because you're really proud of what you're yeah, doing yeah and you want to show your friends and show people i think when on, yeah, when yeah. It's a constant, and when it becomes your identity, and when you're making money off it, I think that's when it becomes an mm-hmm. issue. Yeah, 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 for for sure. And I think, like, touching on what you mentioned about me, <laughs> is like, I think for me, with my Instagram following, like, I have such a mixture of people. I've got my friends that skate on there. I've got my friends into music. I've got. My, obviously my mates who are vegan and I've got people that follow me because of what <laughs> I post and because but they're interested in what I post so I think yeah exactly and I think like for me like posting pictures of myself isn't like 
um, something I want to do that much. But I think like it's also cool to show people how you are and how what Definitely. you look like, <laughs> like in in the sense of like that you're keeping well, kind of thing. Um, and yeah, it's just I think it's like nice to have a I personal agree. touch. And you know that there. there is a difference um, between yeah. being being proud of what you're doing and being selfish with it like mm-hmm. I really think because yeah. I mean if I was to do something really radical like the first time I might post post a picture to my Instagram so I'm like look at this guys I'm doing all this good stuff but I'm not going to profit I'm not going to profit yeah it. sure I'm not going to make it about mm-hmm. me it's going to be that no no I think that's really interesting because like for me um I'm really when it comes to that sort of thing I'm really inspired by the animal liberation front in the sense of like you can um kind of do these things anonymously and then do them a lot people are still going to find out about it but they can but you're going to post it on an anonymous yeah. website you're going to be in a balaclava people are still going to know about it but they're not going to know it's you and I think the people that want to put like their face into it and don't want to do it anonymously, really just want to fuel their own ego, or they really want to just, like, get, like, this amount of followers on Instagram or whatever. And I think, like, there's a quote that goes around on on Facebook from time to time or Instagram or wherever, and it says, your social media is deleted, are you still an activist? And for me, yes. If I had nothing, if I had none of this, I know in myself I'd still be doing activism. But for some people, the sort of Joey Carb yeah. Strong, Earthling Ed, uh, well, maybe not Earthling Ed, but like definitely Humane Hancock. Um, yeah, I have strong feelings about him. Um, but if it wasn't if if it wasn't um, for the Instagram side of things, I think a lot of these people probably wouldn't do it, or at least they wouldn't do it to the level of what they the level of what they do maybe they'll stu- still do stuff for animals and like credit where cre- credit where credit is due i've seen humane hancock a, a fur march i've seen him outside of canada goose unfortunately he didn't th- film any of the fur march which there were some amazing speakers that he really should have posted on his instagram but, but then, that's you a know, discussion not, he, he, why <laughs> would he want to post other people when got that sort of rhetoric yeah, of yeah. Um, making himself look good. So that's like, that links in exactly with that's what it. we're talking about. How would you say that your philosophy um, relates to your actual activism that you have done? Oh, see, that's a really good question. Um, in terms of... In terms of like my philosophy of oppression that we've talked about, I've I've been really, really involved in a lot of like protest movements. I think I sort of started started on. So I am um, I used to I did I, I spoke at a, a protest mm-hmm. for against fascism in Norwich when I was like um, fifteen. Wow. And I've I've done I've done lots of um sort of music shows in aid of um, different charities and stuff mm-hmm. like that but I think probably in terms of my animal stuff because um, this is this my veganism my my ethics has already been there but I'm still like very much new at new at yeah. all of this like it's been maybe like three wow. months so and then with with lockdown going on as mm-hmm. well 
when I really wanted to sort of get my degree out of the way and then um, or get this year of my degree out of the way and then focus I haven't been able to do as much activism as I yeah want. yeah sure I mean so I've done I've done a lot of we should say the sort of dialogue based mm-hmm. stuff but in terms of what I want to do yeah and what I will and what I will do when I can my philosophy is really going to um really going to segue my my sort of radical action so like I'd love to get involved in sort of saboteurs and I'd love to get involved in um sort of uh going to farms and going to um testing sites and you know the stuff that doing the really sort of radical forward thinking stuff and that has been directly from my own philosophy brilliant that makes sense and I feel like I feel like it's the same with with people that don't study philosophy Mm -hmm. you know like you're it doesn't matter whether you're putting a, a theory to it or whether you're putting a uh, a philosopher to it you everyone has their own definitely you know like whether they know that they do or not it's like how we made that connection about yeah. you um um and how you were pretty much doing what what Frere has been saying in a big philosophy book so I think everyone just acting on what they want to do is is them acting on their own philosophy yeah. and as soon as this lockdown is over then I'm going to be radicalizing my sort of um protest action a lot more Amazing. and that stemmed from all of this really cool that sounds really cool really positive brilliant mm. so um do you think that because we've talked about previously sort of anarchism do you think that anarchism relates uh in your knowledge to sort of the animal liberation front or do you know if you know much about that yeah yeah 100 percent. i mean i can't say i know loads and loads about the the specific like animal yeah. liberation front in terms of um, philosophical anarchism which isn't this sort of violent punk punk thing <laughs> that anarchy is made out to be which is all well and good at the same time um but philosophical anarchism is the idea of small communities working yeah. and that being like the main system of of um growth mm-hmm. in in a, in a society that you have small communities all working on their own and then you have um some way which hasn't been done yet of sort of integrating and making sure that everything's being done okay but then we talk about animals and and uh, uh, philosophical anarchism would completely abolish factory Mm -hmm. farms yep it would completely abolish the need for palm oil plantations because everything is being done locally it would completely abolish all of these measures put in place to oppress to be the oppressors of animals mm-hmm. because everything is done in small communities um these animals would just be able to live because um in our small communities there could be so much like it's like with mutual aid yeah. there could be so much activism in promoting veganism and a vegan diet and if everyone is sustainable in that community there's no homelessness there's no wealth yeah then veganism would would prevail and it would shine through because everyone is working in their own uh, tight knit groups. Definitely, it's no. There's no capitalism. There's no industrialization. There's no need for mass production of animals. Yeah, and that would be a brilliant segue to to stop to stop eating meat and stop using animal products altogether. I think so. That's probably the correlation I would make. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, cool. Um, so. <laughs> We, we talked a little bit about this earlier sort of revolution and stuff like that. So 
how would you say um, uh, the revolution in your philosophy, um, your personal philosophy, would look in your eyes? Cool. <laughs> it's a big one, I know. Um, yeah, no. Um, no, I think I think it would have to start with some sort of um, quite radical action on what what we would do with. And I don't, I don't believe in violence no. unless it's a last resort. But what we would do with the people that are really creating the the world that we live in today, so the one percent you might call it, or a lot of people uh, equate it to a certain amount of families that own pretty much the biggest industries in in the world. These these people are fueling the sort of capitalist world we live in. They're fueling mass production of animals. They they are at the centre, and I think going to them first and sorting out what we do with them is the main yeah, thing. Yeah, sure. So I think it would start with a dialogue mm-hmm. about like what you're doing is wrong, but fundamentally, if we want a, if we want a revolution of of love and of change, then it needs to start off with those intentions. So even these people that have done so much bad, it's like, right, well, are you willing to change? Mm -hmm. Are you willing to be given the opportunity to work on making this world better? Um, If not, if they are still caring about their money, then I would say um, imprisonment because they've they've killed, they've personally, I mean, I don't believe in like, I mean, it's radical, but I don't believe in execution because I don't think you can shape a, a, a true free society on Mm -hmm. violence unless it is absolutely necessary so by giving these people an ability to change and uh watching them and making sure that they're sticking to it and then if that doesn't work imprisonment because what they've done is a crime like the capitalism and the people at the top of the food chain are are criminals they're criminals for what they've done to to non-human animals and from what they've done to human animals you know but it's dealing with them first. Then I would think you'd have to implement some form of sort of radical socialism. Mm-hmm. So making sure that no one can be super, super rich because people don't need to be. Um, or ab- abolishing money altogether. Yeah. And people people can just do what they okay. want, you know. Like, you want to go on holiday, you can go on holiday. But make sure that you're benefiting into society if you can. So if that makes any sense. So people work for the communities that they're mm-hmm. in you, and and money's not an issue you know so like eating well and going on holiday and living in luxury like you can do that because everyone can. yeah and that would be and i mean i don't know the economics mm-hmm. and the politics behind that to put that into place but it could work mm-hmm. and i think that's a form of like i wouldn't say communism because it's not on that same pyramid scheme yeah okay of, of one person overlooking it but it is maybe a form of radical socialism so reworking our economic system making sure there's no poverty um making sure that people are properly educated about change from a young age going back into fray mm-hmm. and educated on on oppression and on the importance of animal liberation yeah. and the importance of of keeping this revolution in check so that the children of the revolution don't change it mm-hmm. you know like when when we're gone i think is another step i would do and then it would just be slowly reworking our society through that through through dialogue and conversation and um acceptance of one another and all other living beings and that being the the driving force and anyone who is not willing to listen 
should should be given prison time okay. i think interesting i think that's kind of like one of the only things you would disagree on though is about um sort of prison and stuff but yeah i think without <laughs> i think uh, without like making this podcast even even longer are you happy to go on to the next question yeah of course so this one's more of like sort of a fun question almost um and sort of an opinion based thing and something Mm -hmm. i'm just just interested in what you might think so we've discussed how revolution would look for you so um post-revolution how do you think music and art would look that's a really good question. I think I think it would have to cool, you know, it would have to stem from some sort of acceptance. I do think that music and art should still be a global thing. Yeah. So like musicians can still like whether we live in an anarchistic community based world, <laughs> like I think music and art should be global and people should be given that opportunity and I don't think that should change however if we implemented this system of revolution then the idea of them being incredibly rich millionaires and gigs being incredibly expensive Mm. and artwork being hundreds of thousands of pounds would wouldn't be the case anymore cool yeah because we we'd live we'd live in a world where money wasn't the main the main concern if everyone is already living in an element of luxury because money is unneeded yeah. then their work would just be the same as any other work in a small community but i do think it's important to look at the things that humans have in this world which are beautiful mm-hmm. and i think the connection we have through the arts as individuals is incredibly important and isn't something that we should lose yeah and it and but I do think that it shouldn't be westernized either, you mm-hmm. know, like like there's so much there's so much beautiful art and beautiful music um from all different parts of the world that are overlooked because of like the Western trends. Yeah, yeah. So maybe post global revolution that's sort of undertwined and and pulled apart and we get a real appreciation for all different cultures and all different music and different artwork too. But I mean a lot of people or a lot of anarchists would say that you wouldn't need it. <laughs> yeah. And I've heard that argument, but I think that's stupid, personally, because <laughs> because she, you know, we're we we are incredibly artistic beings, and that that shouldn't be stopped no. because we're liberating ourselves. Sure, it yeah. would just have to be reworked and changed. And again, in terms of the economics, I can't I can't answer on how we do that. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, that's that's what I would say. Cool, that. awesome. Um, do you have any thoughts on permaculture? Oh, can you explain more? Um, in the sense of like permaculture is in like small communities working together. So you put like effort into the land and you work with the land um, to have produce small community based gardens of like organic oh, vegetables and you'd have enough to feed um, the community. Do you have any sort of I... I think that is how it should be. Yeah, <laughs> cool. Post-revolution, I think that is how it would have to work. And I think not only would it be the most self-sufficient, it would also be the best in terms of um, in terms of eliminating this mass production. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms and in terms of the climate, 
you wouldn't yeah. be sending all your food across the world to sell to other countries because everyone is being sustainable for themselves and there but then a question is made about like uh climates in the uk compared to climate in africa yeah so obviously the same amount of of food can't be grown in those two different climates very true maybe maybe there would have to be a sort of global conversation about everyone using permaculture but there is a level of sort of transportation yeah yeah i think that's true all different food and that's fine like because if we're doing that on a much smaller scale it's I think that's still that's still okay because Mm -hmm. it's not something that people can capitalize on and it's not affecting the sustainability of that community Mm -hmm. but it's just like it's making sure that that no matter where you are in the world you still have that appreciation for other cultures and other cuisine yeah and um just other spices and food yeah. that we wouldn't get that we wouldn't get in the UK, which I think would be would be acceptable in a sort of permaculture anarchistic society. Cool. Yeah. But I do agree. I do completely agree with it. I think that is the way forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Um, like I think some of these some of these places in the UK that are doing this right now are really revolutionary. Mm-hmm. Really awesome. I'd love to visit some of them. Yeah, same. <laughs> cool. Um, so this is more just about you so how do you feel that yoga and self-care relates to you oh god keeping this nice and concise because of the 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 length Mm. of this at the same time that like i've being all raw i'm being quite raw about it i've i've been through a bit of a whirlpool in my life like in terms of um in terms of partying way too hard and being very depressed and I've also had problems of like eating and stuff that I, I, I went through when I was a younger teen and um, for me sort of implementing real self-care over this past year has been so beneficial to to myself but not only because I, I feel happy, I feel healthy. My yoga is so good for my depression because it gives me time to just be and to just meditate and to just yeah. be experienced of the world around. But leading on to like liberation, if I'm in a better place mentally, that means I can work harder and better mm-hmm. with with absolute liberation and, and working hard um, to, to be an activist. Yeah. I'm able to do that because of the self-care that I put in place. So if I, I, I can't help someone else if I'm not helping myself. Yeah, very true. With my mental health disorder, because mm-hmm. I have um, severe depression. Yeah. But a lot of people wouldn't know, like, it's it's um, biological. It's all uh, in my brain serotonin-based. Mm-hmm. A lot of people would meet me and they'd be like, no way. Yeah. Like, you, you're suffering from that. But it's because I've put in these stuff and I work very hard on myself. Mm-hmm. Um but not only for me, so I can help other people, wow. um, whether that's non-human or human. So That's really cool. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that with us. That's cool. I don't mind. It's... Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So thank you so much for being a guest on, on this podcast. Um, oh, you're very welcome. Yeah. I loved it. A lot of fun chatting. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'm very happy to have met you through through all of this stuff. So, yeah, it's really cool um before we end do you have any um sort of 
books or anything to, for listeners that you recommend? Yeah, so um, you know, definitely, definitely those first those first three books that I gave you. Mm-hmm. But in terms of um, obviously we've spoken a bit about culture. Yeah. And um, we've spoken a bit about sort of widening your sort of view and not and not um dividing yourself from different cultures, different types of oppression. So I'm going to recommend a philosophy book called How the World Thinks. Mm-hmm. And it's by um, Julian Baghini. Okay. And it basically just gives a global history of um, of philosophy and how cultures have developed since like um, since the like the BC time. Mm. And I think we've 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 covered a lot of like stuff on Southeast Asia, and it goes quite in detail of that. So cool. I think I think if you're interested in what we've been talking about, that might be a good book. Um, and then. Obviously, Animal Liberation, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, and Simone Weil's um, Oppression and Liberty. But at the same time, if you were interested about um, what I was saying about Marx, and you want to learn a little bit more, mm-hmm. I really recommend um, the Economic and Philosophical Manuscripts by Marx. Mm-hmm. And it's, just, it's, what, it's what he wrote when he was in his 20s. And it's very accessible and sort of easy to read because it's quite short. It's only about like ten, like twelve to fifteen pages long. Yeah. Okay. Um, and it's it's really really interesting and sort of gives you a bit of like background into what what I was talking about in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And then I'll give one more. Yep. Um, it's a book by Owen Jones. Yeah. Um, obviously he's a socialist, a journalist for the Guardian. He does an awful lot of good, I think. Mm-hmm. Um. And his book, The Establishment, and how they get away with it. Yeah. And it just it basically just talks about um the oppressor that we've been speaking about yeah, and how yeah. how um how they really underpin us in society and it gives sort of his opinions and it's obviously quite written quite recently, only mm-hmm. about five years ago. Yeah, so I've read this. Good, very good book. Yeah, it's a really good book. So that would be like my third recommendation. Amazing. Okay. Um all of those I'm gonna put for like listeners, I'm gonna put um in the show notes below so that you can check those out. Um yeah, so if you just wanna like um just sort of say uh any final thoughts, shout yourself out, feel free. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um just a big thank you for being able to come on the show. Um, hmm. I feel like I'm going on my I'm going on a big journey at the moment with my own thought and everything's developing and I'm and it's been really nice to talk to you and have you guys all listen about yeah. um my my biggest interest which is philosophy and um if you have been interested um I I I have like sort of a social media presence where I do talk about veganism philosophy and stuff so my instagram is um at mweb um at m underscore web underscore and my um, blog, which um, philosophy, politics, and living well dot com, bio, and I'm sure I can convince Ollie to put it in. The oh, show. if you're lucky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. That they will all be in the show notes. Um, yeah, but lovely, and thank yeah, you for having me. You. I've really enjoyed it. from the other side. Yeah, of the country. <laughs> no, it's amazing how people can connect between, like, connect from like different parts of the country um to discuss issues and yeah thank you so much for being on to the, on this podcast and like the second episode uh we've covered a lot of stuff and i think i'm hoping anyway that a lot of people will get a lot out of it um but yeah 
Hey, yeah, to... so thank you once again for for um for being on the podcast. Anything else you want to add, or is that cool? No, that's all good. Okay, perfect. So uh, thank you very much for watching this podcast. Um, it's very interesting to discuss these issues here with uh, Emily. Um, thank you once again for all the positive um feedback uh, i've received so far and um feel free to connect with us on instagram and facebook at uh, absolute liberation podcast um and yeah keep on fighting for liberation